Welcome to the Culture and Sports Podcast, where we have discussions about how leadership and organizational culture impact organizational success, team and athlete performance, and the short and long-term mental, physical, and emotional health of athletes. The Culture and Sports Podcast is brought to you by Culture and Sports. Culture and Sports helps sports organizations, teams, coaches, support and front office staff, and athletes understand the importance of leadership and organizational culture and its direct impact to success. Please join Lori Okamura and Dr. Jeremy Piasecki in this season of the Culture and Sports Podcast. Welcome to season four of the Culture and Sports Podcast. This season is going to be a little different than previous seasons. During this entire season, we're going to take a deep dive into a case study about a current toxic and abusive culture to sports organization. We're going to explore the lived experience from athletes, speak to experts, and the investigative reporter who broke the story. But first, let me introduce you to our incredible guest co-host for this season, Lori Okamura. She is currently the president of World Paravalli and has an incredible career. Thank you so much for being our guest co-host this season, Lori. Sure. Thank you, Jeremy, for having me on this season. Um, so... Yeah, as Jeremy mentioned, I'm the president of World Paravolley, which is the International Parasport Federation for Sitting Volleyball and Beach Paravolley, Standing Beach Paravolley. Um, we're in the, para, the world of Paralympic sport, right? We're athletes with disabilities, um, but I come from a long background uh, on the Olympic side of sports, particularly with volleyball and beach volleyball. Um, and I kind of joke when I meet you know, new students and, and new people that I've literally had every job in my industry. And I've been lucky enough to stay involved in the volleyball and the sport world. Um, but I've literally had every job. I've played the sport. I've uh, made the products that we use to, to play the sport. Um, I've been involved on, on the organization side, on the sponsor side, you know, so whenever you have that opportunity to be involved in one industry and see it from different angles, it gives you a really unique perspective and sometimes a cynical perspective, right, on, on what you see. Mm-hmm. Um, I started my career in the collegiate world of athletics and, uh, and got what I think is a very good um, opportunity to experience a, a major high-profile athletic institution. You know, I graduated from the University of Southern California, right? Trojan Athletics is storied for its, you know, its um, sort of Fortune 500 approach, right, to the business of athletics. Um, I had an opportunity to to witness, you know, several coaches uh, at the university of women's volleyball, of of other sports as well, men's volleyball, basketball, football, um, and I've had the you know, real, I think, uh, honor and, and unique opportunity to be mentored through the process. Um, my area was media relations and communications for a long time and got some real amazing training, you know, but, but um, that allowed me to have as close a view as you possibly can to the culture, right, to the, um, the importance of athlete safeguarding. Right. And, and which is something very new. Right. Even though we've had athletics and athletes for hundreds and hundreds of years that, you know, we um, we don't know or haven't been able to explore as deeply into the whole area of how do you protect those athletes? Right. How do you provide right. um, resources for them you know, to access? And that that's one of the reasons why, Jeremy, you know, I, I follow your research and, uh, you know, I think it's very interesting also that you come from the coach, the athlete 
the organizer, you know, perspective. So you and I have a bit of that shared um, perspective, which I think is really important for this, you know, for this particular season uh, where we are going to dig deep into, uh, you know, into culture, right? So, so that's really to me, um, you know, I'd, I'd love to, I, I, you know, I know we know each other, but I'd love to hear more about, you know, that aspect of, of um, you know, your career path as well. So my career path is has been pretty varied as well, and and it's it's gone a lot of different directions. So um, I swam and played water polo growing up, uh, and the only reason why I started swimming was because when I first moved from Brooklyn, New York to Southern California, um, I didn't know how to swim, and I fell into a pool, and some random person pulled me out. Um, because no one saw that I walked towards the pool and, and fell in and my parents were like, no, we need to get you to learn how to swim. So I uh, started swimming. I loved it. Um, and basically any type of, you know, swimming I did, or even water, uh, sport. So I even did diving at one point, uh, you know, swimming, water polo. And then I even, uh, got into, um, open water swimming before it was a way bigger thing. There's only, you know, a few hundred of us out there at any given event. Um, unlike now where you'll see, you know, thousands or tens of thousands, like at Ironmans and stuff like that, or, or just triathlons. Um, so I started coaching actually when I was still an athlete, uh, you know, I would hope I would help different, uh, age groups, um, you know, in swimming and, and water polo. And then I eventually started leading programs. Uh, and then in 2008, I was in Afghanistan. Um, I was in the Marine Corps for almost 25 years. Um, I found a pool in a random area. I convinced a, uh, um, the local elder to clean the pool up, which was full of trash and to let me teach the locals how to swim and play a game called water hand soccer, because there was no literal translation to it. And a few weeks later, the Afghanistan national Olympic committee heard about what I was doing. Um, uh, they reached out, um, and they wanted me to help them start a national water polo program and to help their just started that week national swim program. Uh, and I thought with helping, oh, I would, you know, you know, help them for about a year, just get up and running. And, and it ended up being uh, 13 years till, unfortunately, the Taliban retook over the country um, and really restricted the rights of basically every single Afghan in that country, uh, which is incredibly, incredibly sad. Um, and the only other experience I have of with sports, you know, even though I kept it very brief was, uh, when I was in Germany from 2010 to 2014, I actually ended up playing professional water polo when I was a little bit older, uh, which was an incredible experience. I even ended up coaching for a little time as well. So, um, in a nutshell, that is my, um, uh, experience. And then, um, you know, moving on to, uh, my education, I have a doctorate in leadership, uh, in higher education, specifically, my doctoral research was on organizational culture or toxic culture. And uh, my research was on the lived experience of people who are adversely impacted by toxic leadership and organizations. So uh, this season is definitely in line um, uh, with, uh, you know, where my expertise lies. Uh, speaking of which, Lori, um, I'm sure in your career, you've, you've encountered at least one or many times, or at least became aware of toxic and abusive <clears throat> cultures. Can you please share a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I mean, 
it, like I said, I've had every job in, in my industry, right? And over the years, and it's been, what, 34 years now, um, it, you know, it, it doesn't surprise me anymore. Like, maybe I'm a little bit more jaded, you know, than I was when I first started out, right? I started working very, very young. And, um, and because of that, like, oftentimes you find yourself, you know, being disregarded because of your age or your gender or your ethnicity. And, you become like, you know, you hear that expression, everyone says, oh, I wish I was a fly on the wall, you know, so I could hear, you know, what was going on or, you know, kind of get the inside scoop. Well, I was that fly on the wall, like, to, to be quite, you know, graphic about it. Um, you know, people would forget you were in the room or, um, you know, again, just sort of discount, you know, what it was that you brought to the table. And because of that, you know, I did have an occasion to witness um, be a part of or have somebody come to me for help over the years uh, of, of very toxic, um, abusive situations. And in some cases, like actually dangerous, like to human safety, you know, type of situations. Um, I'll share a few with you, you know, without without jeopardizing any open cases or, or anything. But, you know, some of the ones that have stuck with me, you know, over the years is that I um, I experienced once um, as a as a you know, as a student, right, and as a high school student, walking into a college campus, and, you know, coincidence, whatever whatever it was, right, there happened to be this major earthquake, you know, as I was walking onto campus and, and going to actually observe um, a women's volleyball practice, right, and um, practice wasn't stopped because this, and, you know, earthquakes, you think people in Cal, this was in California, you know, people in California must be used to earthquakes, you know, must be no big deal for them. Well, this was a really big one. Right. This was the Whittier quake in 1987. And, um, you know, buildings toppled. People lost, you know, homes and structures and freeways collapsed and, you know, and things of that nature. Right. And yet the coach of this team um, continued, not only continued practice during the quake, you know, and the and the most violent part of it, you know, the 30 seconds of shaking and stuff, but um, really like threatened the athletes verbally, like you better not you know, you better not seek shelter right now because we're in the middle of this drill, right? And that was, you know, not really the first time I'd seen something like that. You know, I uh, had a parent that was involved in high-performance uh, martial arts, you know, who was pretty abusive, pretty, um, you know, I think um, not responsible for the duty of care that coaches and administrators have, you know, over athletes, especially young athletes. So I had had some experience, you know, with um, abuse you know, unfortunately, up until that age. But to see cases of, you know, abuse and, and neglect and, and um, you know, even, even cases where, you know, athletes just felt uncomfortable, right, or anxious or unsafe, uh, for me, it really hits home because, you know, my athletic career stopped because of injury, right? And so, you know, there's always a part of you that's like, well, how can I stay continue to stay involved or what, what will be my role now moving forward? Because, you know, you have that little, that little, little kid's dream of, Oh, I'm going to play sports my whole life. And, you know, you can at, at a certain level, but you know, at the, at the top levels, like, you, you know, it's not always possible, right. It's not always going to work out for everybody. Um, so coming back to that, you know, for me, anytime I, I have an opportunity, you know, to get involved or to support or to amplify or be an advocate for, you know, athletes in this situation, um, in any situation really, but it, it's shocking to me, you know, so I, I was reached out to by a number of women from a college volleyball program where there was a coaching transition, you know, happening. 
and you know you you don't you, you don't want to break their confidence right you don't want to reveal you know who they are if they haven't been able to reveal that themselves but you also want to try to help guide them to finding resources you know for help that's the biggest problem right the question is always like where can i go for help who's going to believe me Exactly. Right. And especially if it's something that they've done that they feel might be misinterpreted or might be against the rules, you know, it doesn't matter if you, even if you break the rules, okay, you'll, you'll pay the consequence for that eventually, but it doesn't give somebody the right to hurt you. Right. It doesn't give somebody the right to invade your personal space or abuse you. It doesn't matter what you've done, you know? And, um, so there were, there were these five women that reached out and I didn't really know any of them. You know, one, it turns out I had a loose connection to, you know, a, a former coach of theirs called me up and said, Hey, my athlete is really struggling. Um, you know, can I give her your, uh, phone number just to talk some things out, you know, as far as I, I don't know who else to send her to that won't, um, either use this against her or retaliate or, you know, who might be recruiting her, you know, and, and, and I'm not in that position, right? I can't do anything for anyone when it comes to recruiting or, you know, or getting a scholarship somewhere. So I think I might've been the perfect option, you know, at that time. And the, the basis of, you know, and it, it was five women that had a very um, central abuser, right? It was the same, unfortunately it turned out to be the same, you know, coach. And there was everything from, emotional abuse to um, body shaming. Uh, in one case of one particular athlete, there was physical abuse and that she had suffered a concussion um, from what we in volleyball call a coach on one drill, right? It's a one-on-one -on -one drill with the coach just firing. You know, it, it's really, I don't, it, I don't even know what you know, I've seen in my whole life as a volleyball player, but I don't even know really what the purpose, you know, deep down would be, but, but it's a commonly used drill. And um, unfortunately, she had suffered a concussion, you know, as a result, um, but was forced to, this was before concussion protocols were instituted, you know, for volleyball or for collegiate sports. And um, yeah, I mean, these volleyball athletes were just, you know, they were suffering. And what's interesting about it is, um, you know, one of the reasons why athletes don't want to report, right, and don't know who to turn to is that somehow it, it got you know, known that these, that, that I had said, you know, these athletes had come to me for help. Nobody knew who the athletes were, right? We never talked about names, but, uh, you know, there was a, there was a bit of retaliation, you know, uh, whether it was against me or the athletes themselves, um, by a media source in our sport, right? Claiming that the whole thing was, was pucky. No way could this coach who won all these things and accolades and you know this guy's a great guy no way could he have ever done this to these athletes well nobody actually really knew what the athletes were alleging or what they had experienced it was just simply this sort of mentality that oh but look at the win-loss record of this individual he you know he can't possibly be responsible for this kind of behavior right and that's really what it you know the that what you hear so often is like well there can't possibly be you know that can't possibly be true that this person is you know, an abuser because, well, look at, look at their win-loss record, you know, look at their, look at their, their number of halls of fame that they're, you know, inducted to, right? That seems to be the benchmark. And, um, you know, probably the worst, I mean, two of the worst cases, you know, I, I um, had an opportunity to, to volunteer on the board of, of USA Volleyball for a long time and uh, served in the capacity of its board chair for the last five years that I that I uh, volunteered for the organization. And during that time, um, there had been a case. It had spanned 
at that time it had spanned over 25 years. And by the time everything had, had finished yeah, with adjudication, it had gone over 30 years of a coach that was, um, you know, you hear the phrases like the worst kept secret or, you know, oh, but hasn't it been long enough? You know, the, over these generations of athletes, um, you know, you, you say they're allegations, but they, there were enough people in the industry who knew who each other was, you know, to know that, yeah, this, this has been going on for quite a while. Right. And, um, you know, as is the case with a lot of abuse, um, situations that don't get addressed or may persist or, you know, any abuse allegation, you know, Safe Sport International has a great statistic, which we'll keep sharing over and over and over that, um, you know, the average age of a person who's abused in their teen years, uh, to actually report, the abuse is around 55 years old or 52 years old, sorry, 52 years old. Um, and I have a friend now who's 55 who, when she was 52, um, you know, met up with her abuser. Uh, you know, she was 15 and a half, I think when it took place and ended up, you know, all these years later as a 50 plus year old adult coaching a junior volleyball team against her exact abuser, you know, with the same allegations of abuse, you know, for athletes, in that time period, which those athletes would have been 15 or 16 years old. And, you know, obviously the coach ages every year and the athletes age group, you know, that they coach stays the same. So, um, right. you know, the examples are usually like, there's a lot of helplessness. There's a lot of, I'm afraid of being um, punished for saying something out loud. You know, we're afraid of retaliation. The uh, coach is going to pull my scholarship, you know, who's going to care what's happening to me, you know, I report to coach or, or, you know, again, it, there's always a risk and reward, you know, type of argument, right? Internal arguments like, well, if I risk this, you know, actually I won't get this reward, you know, or I'll miss out on this reward. Right. And so that's, you know, that's really a, a kind of a real, you know, situation, but the worst case I think so far, you know, that I've seen where every element, you know, enablers are involved, um, uh, coaches, um, administrators, the community, the, you know, that, that really one of the worst cases I think I've ever seen of abuse, um, is kind of the reason why you and I are here, you know, today, right. And that we're, we're digging a bit deeper into the situation. So, uh, during your time at World Paravolley and USA Volleyball and the many other organizations that you've been with, um, the abuse wasn't just like physical, right? Like there were there there was more to it than just physical abuse. A absolutely, I mean the, the the examples of abuse that I've seen firsthand and have been involved in cases, right? Actually adjudicating cases. Um, Unfortunately, the majority come from sexual misconduct, right? Sexual abuse, molestation, rape. Um, a lot of it is involving the coach-player dynamic, you know, a, a kind of supervisor to subordinate kind of situation, if we could equate that to, you know, the workplace. Um, this case I just uh, spoke about, you know, the 30-year-long you know, adjudication process. I mean, that was one of the, that was probably the worst case of sexual misconduct that, that um, could not be called sexual misconduct. And what I mean by that is, you know, one of the problems that we face, not only in our country, but in other countries around the world, is the policies and procedures that are lacking, you know, to protect athletes in these situations. You know, they're, 
there is an effort, obviously, in the United States, you know, through the U.S. Center for Safe Sport and other organizations that at least athletes involved in, you know, Team USA sports, right? There's some jurisdiction um, of new agencies and, and some new policies that are in effect. However, um, that really doesn't help the athletes that came before, you know, that before there was right. anything, um, you know, any trend of safe sport or any best practices or even any acknowledgement that these sort of things happen. Right. And so there's there is this gap, this problem, you know, that in trying to catch up with the cases of the past, um, the current environment, you know, the current standards, they really don't cover everything that an athlete might have experienced or suffered, you know, before 2017 when the center, you know, came online. Um, I saw a lot of that, especially when when dealing with the Team USA issues, um, volunteering with USA Volleyball. Um, I still see a lot of it, you know, enabler cases. And, um, you know, then there's always the, the, you know, if, you, if you're approaching these cases with a victim-centered, you know, mindset, um, there's always the possibility that the victims will become overwhelmed, you know, with the attention, with the having to, you know, being put in a position where they've been having to relive their trauma. Like, why is it them, you know, that has to relive the trauma? Why not the abuser? you know, who has to relive the trauma or, or God forbid, nobody should have to relive, you know, that trauma. Um, but you know, there's the, there's the issues where like, I've seen a case, long standing case, um, that was not cleared. You know, the individual was not necessarily vindicated as all the headlines, you know, read, but the victim was essentially shamed into submission, you know, and stopped cooperating with the case, which is very common, right? Um, I don't blame the victim at all. You know, I blame the people who, you know, created this mob mentality that it's not okay for victims of, and that was a sexual misconduct case, you know, that, that um, it's not, a, you, you know, it's, it's, it is the right of the person who suffers the abuse to do something about it. It's their right. And if they don't want to do anything about it until a certain point, it's their right too. Right. It shouldn't be right. the right of the general public or the media or anybody else to force that person to defend their position of being abused just because the abuser wins national championships or has a good win loss record or, well, he doesn't look like an abuser. Well, what is that supposed to mean? You know, that's my favorite one. Well, they don't look like they'd be an abuser. Right. Well, what is exactly is an abuser supposed to look like? You know, so. Right. Um, yeah. I, you know, I really. In, in dealing with these cases, you know, there is a moment, and I know you understand this, you know, just from reading through your research, I'm sure getting through the research of all the people that you, you know, interviewed and interacted with, like that had to have been a struggle, you know, just by the sheer volume of people that, you know, that you were able to, to connect with. But, you know, I know for myself, it is extremely difficult now that I've gone into, you know, more international volunteer role with, you know, with World Paravolley. Um, you know, I applaud World Paraval. Our previous president was very committed uh, to uh, to safeguarding, right? Not just of athletes, but of you know, most of these organizations are volunteer-based organizations. You know, when you when you go, as you know, right, from your experience in Afghanistan, when you're dealing with international um, sport federations, it gets even more complicated because you've also got cultural differences, you've got um, translation and language you know, barriers. Like um, one good example is the word safeguarding, right? No matter what application, you know, you're using for it. Like, uh, you know, it wasn't until I started working in the international space and with Safe Sport International as well that 
somebody brought up the fact that in German, there is no literal translation for the word safeguarding, right? Like just like just right. what you're saying about water polo, you know, water, hands, soccer in the water, you know, I mean, it, there, there is no, you know, straight translation for words like safe sport or safeguarding, like in Arabic, in German, in Italian, you know, in, in all right. of our languages spoken around the world. Um, sometimes there isn't a direct translation, right, for what it is that we're talking about. And so it becomes more important to lay out examples, right, examples of cases. Um, and World Paravolley in particular, we have a Safeguarding Integrity Commission that was formed um, within the last two years. And uh, literally, there are people from around the world trying to schedule a meeting with this group is is really difficult because you're dealing with like six time zones, right? But that's the beauty of it is right. that, you know, if we can bring together more people from different parts of the world to sort of get a baseline, right? What's our baseline for athlete safeguarding? What's our, you know, what are the words that we should or should not be using because maybe they don't translate? Like, how do we, you know, be more clear? All of these experiences, you know, hearing the case studies, you know, really is the best way to learn, unfortunately, right? It's, it's, it is the best way to, to learn, right? And from our mistakes or from our successes. Um, but it all draws back to, you know, when you are an athlete, especially if you are a young athlete, you know, or just starting out, like who gives you the handbook? You get a handbook, you get a rule book, right, about your sport. You get maybe a handbook from your university or your club about, you know, the do's and don'ts. But who gives you the handbook on safeguarding, right? Who gives you the handbook mm -hmm. to tell you, you know, if my coach, if I feel like something is not quite right, you know, in the way my coach or this person involved with my club or my you know team and the way that that I react to some of the things that they say to me you know if they're hurtful if they're asking too much about my weight or uh, controlling what I eat too much you know not in the terms of nutrition but in the terms of like why are you eating anything you're so fat you know if you're so fat you can't jump I mean you know really it's the it's the words we use right the hate the hate mm -hmm. you know the hateful words and things like that. Um, you know, really, there there's very little guidance for athletes, um, and hopefully that's starting to change, right? Um, you know, I have a, a a great organization that I feel kind of lucky I fell I fell into uh, was approached by the Foundation for Global Sport Development a few years ago, Isabel Cathcart, and I really want to point her out because I'm so grateful to her for you know pulling me into this. Um, but the Foundation for Global Sport Development, which does fantastic work, you know, uh, documentaries and, and um, you know, really a lot of support, grant making and grant funding, they funded um, what's called the Athlete Helpline. And right now it's in North America, but um, I'm hoping that the model of what they, you know, what they are doing can be implemented in other parts of the world, right? But they've got a... Um, mm -hmm. Uh, 24 hour monitored, you know, helpline. It's actually part of a national child abuse prevention, you know, hotline. But for certain hours of the day, it's staffed by people with athlete centered experience, you know, with the focus um, professionals. And it's not really only just a counseling, you know, helpline, but it's a helpline. It really is a help line, right? If you need some resources in your area for counselors, or if you need to understand what your legal rights are and need to be referred to a lawyer, or if you have some questions about nutrition, because you're not, you know, feeling so great, and you're being told not to eat this or not to eat that, but you know, you have to eat something, you know, this is a place that, that athletes in particular can call, 
um, you know, to get some advice, to get some support, to talk it out if they need to as well. You know, it is that kind of a helpline. Uh, and so I would say, you know, for this series, I just want to really highlight them because, um, you know, if, if our viewers are feeling anxious or triggered or, um, you know, by a lot of the, what we're going to be talking about, the Athlete Helpline, and it's really athletehelpline.org, and we'll, we'll mark that, uh, some information, you know, for people to share. Um, during our podcast, like, please reach out to them if you feel the need, you know, to talk to somebody or if, if maybe hearing some of what we're talking about um, triggers a memory, you know, or an experience uh, out of your lived experience, please feel free to reach out to them if you if you need to, right? And they'll be there um, during our sessions and during our, our episodes. No, thank you for sharing that, Lori. Uh, that's an incredible resource, and, and we'll definitely uh, post that on our website um, and also uh, some other places as well. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about, um, you know, different cases that have, have gone on over the years, um, you know, whether it was, you know, 15 or 30 years ago or even if it's last week. Um, toxic cultures aren't necessarily illegal. Um, you know, when it comes to the law or even standards of an organization. So can you explain the difficulty of like toxic and abusive cultures and being able to address it through law? Yeah, well, the best way to probably do that is to go back to that statistic, you know, some and some facts from Safe Sport International. I think it's 75 percent of all cases of abuse go unreported, 75 percent. Like that's, you know, when I first read that, that piece of information, I, I went to them, I was like, are you serious? Like, can that possibly be true? And of course, yes, it is. Right. And this was off of a survey that, that uh, in, involved more than 10,000 people. Right. Um, and, and the statistic I shared earlier that, you know, there is a long delay oftentimes if, if any, you know, reporting can be done that an athlete that is abused in their teen years, um, the average age of reporting is 52, right? So sometimes what triggers that is maybe you are a parent who has a child that might just be ready to go into youth sports or, you know, maybe is following your footstep, whether it's in your sport or another, and you see an abuser, you know, a record. And this, if I, you know, I mean, I could fund a whole helpline myself if I had a nickel for every time I was, you know, told by somebody, I can't believe I just walked into this youth basketball game and I, I see the coach that abused me and my teammates is coaching another team. Or I can't believe I just walked into this volleyball game and just had to coach against the guy who abused me, you know. And um, I think that's where it starts is that oftentimes, you know, I, I remember this one case that we did with the 30-year you know, a sexual abuse case, um, the statute of limitations, right, for criminal acts of abuse, whether it's sexual molestation, and, and not everything applies, believe it or not, you know, pushing somebody down in a practice or uh, shouting in their face and invading their personal space, like oftentimes is not a criminal, you know, um, violation, right, doesn't violate any law. But for the, the acts that do, primarily in the area of sexual misconduct, um, there, there's all kinds of problems to reporting, you know, whether the individual feels safe enough to report that a crime actually took place, whether anybody in law enforcement is equipped 
to to you know approach this from a very victim trauma informed you know victim centered approach or if it becomes more of a you have to prove that you were abused for me to take you seriously right it's it's like that innocent until proven guilty you know the abuser is innocent until proven guilty but the victim has to prove over and over and over again that they were you know that they were harmed right um I think there's, you know, on the on the more kind of personal and cultural side, you know, there's a real aversion to reporting because that somehow makes it more real that the act, you know, took place, right, or occurred. And um, dealing with trauma, you know, is a lifelong, it's a lifelong endeavor, right? I mean, you can have many different, you know, many different outcomes or different days that you feel a certain way, but really what we're talking about is is trauma, not unlike grief also, Right, it's just a lifelong um, commitment to managing the level that you feel at that time, and sometimes it just doesn't. It doesn't, um, you know, it doesn't play into the picture that you have the opportunity, or the support, or even understand that some of this activity is criminal, right, and and should or can be reported. Um, but most of it is not, right. Most of it is not um, technically, you know criminal under the law. And that's the problem is that most abuse occurs in that gray area, right? And that, you know, and that sort of uncharted territory is like, well, you know, the police are going to tell me to work it out until something happens, like domestic abuse, right? Okay, until you die, like we can't do anything. Um, or if you have a stalker, okay, well, until that person actually touches you or invades your home or something, you know, we really can't, uh, you know, we can get them for, for breaking and entering or something else, but not necessarily for stalking or emotional abuse, right? Or, or jeopardizing your health and welfare, right? Emotionally and mentally. Um, and that's, that's a problem, right? That's a disconnect in our different systems, not just in our country, but all around the world. I mean, as bad as we think right. we have it here in the U.S., my God, you know, it's 10 times worse in other parts of the world where um, there is nobody watching what's going on, right? The people who are being who are suffering through this abuse are just suffering, like period. Athletes or not athletes, right? So yeah, I think um, you know part of the you know part of the important. I think one of the important parts of how we change this dynamic, you know, is in the reporting structure, the structure itself, and the encouragement for victims to report. You know, finding safe places and and safe environments for them to report what's happened to them. Um, you know, this, this case study that we're going to be looking at, uh, really, which honestly is probably the worst abuse case that I can remember ever, ever being, you know, uh, uh, ever being carried out, like at the level of collegiate athletes. Uh, and I'm glad we're going to be spending some time, you know, with the people involved and also some, some other experts and such. But it's really, you know, the, the, the importance of reporting, I think, will come through, right, in, in these discussions. And, um, you know, the importance of um, holding your space, right? Taking, you know, the, the, everyone talks about accountability and every, you know, everybody has to take accountability. But how you become accountable to yourself as a victim is, okay, you know what, I deserve to have my situation be resolved, right? I don't deserve to be, you know, abused continually in this situation. And it's okay for me to say stop, you know, and try to seek help, um, you know, to, to make it all go away. Right. And that's, that's, I think, one of the most important um, themes that will come from from this season.
you know, talking about reporting, uh, during my doctoral research, I, uh, I asked, uh, over 1,100 people, it was actually 1,129 people, if they ever had a toxic leader or part of a toxic organization. And uh, nearly every single person who I asked uh, said yes. And there were only six people who said no. Uh, so 1,129, you had six that were no, so that's, uh, you know, 1,123 people who, who didn't say no and that they were part of a uh, toxic organization or had toxic leader. I also asked those same people that said yes, they experienced a toxic leader or an abusive leader or toxic culture um, if they reported it. And nearly every single person who said yes to that they were, you know, uh, you know, adversely impacted or part of a toxic culture or toxic you know, leader or abusive leader, almost every single person said they didn't report it. Um, and mm -hmm. so it's very interesting that you bring up, you know, the average age of, uh, 52 as, as, uh, people are, are finally reporting, you know, the trauma that they experience. And, and I definitely believe that, uh, because, yeah. um, you know, it's so hard to report. It's so hard to, uh, you're already vulnerable and you're already so far down as it is if, if you're adversely impacted by toxic or abusive leadership, right? And then, you know, to have to not only relive it when you're when you're reporting it, uh, but also suffering the retaliation, the retribution, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and the so many other things that come with it. Um, you know, it's it's very difficult to imagine anyone uh who um you know is able to come forward and say this is happening to me. Uh, because most of the time, just like you said, uh, you know, they have to prove that it's, that it happened to them. They have to prove that someone who everyone else loves is doing something that is not necessarily aligned with organizational values or the law. So, um, mm -hmm. I definitely, um, am very interested to see how this season goes and to, um, you know, listen and see, um, you know, this case study that we're doing. Um, and you know, it's going to be very difficult. Uh, I myself have, um, you know, my own lived experiences uh, of toxic and abusive leadership. Um, and so, uh, which is obviously, well, it's not obvious, but uh, which is why this was one of the directions I went in my doctoral research uh, was because uh, I did live it myself. And so it was something that I was familiar with. Uh, and then I could start researching. Um, and obviously with your career, um, you probably back when you were very young in your career, uh, you weren't leading organizations and dealing with, uh, complaints and, and people reporting, but obviously throughout the time of, as your career progressed, you dealt with it more and more. Um, and so it's just unfortunate to see, I mean, we're all human beings, you know, you know, just like good things happen, you know, negative things happen and people make poor choices. Um, and mm -hmm. then obviously they don't want to get in trouble, right? So they'll double down, they'll continue to, um, you know, to abuse, um, or continue just the toxic behavior in general, uh, because they don't want to get in trouble. They don't want to lose their job. They don't want, right. um, you know, something looking bad for them. Like if they're in multiple hall of fames, like you were talking about, um, you know, you know, they don't want their reputation tarnished. And then a lot of people who support them are like, oh, well, look at what this report is doing to them as the mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. you know, person, the coach who's in the Hall of Fame. It's like, oh, you know, the person who filed the complaint is tarnishing their name. 
I think dynamics, you know, not only in the U.S. Uh, or North America, but the world, um, you know, we still struggle with that. You know, we think that mm -hmm. the old school coach who's screaming at their at their players or athletes, uh, who's throwing chairs and and um, you know doing all those things, you know, we think that those people in turn will create wins and will put uh, people in seats and that will uh, generate income for an organization like a professional team or a collegiate team, uh, right. you know, and those are important. And, and one of the things that uh, we talk about a lot at culture and sports, you know, whether it's through the culture and sports podcast or the athletic approach podcast uh, or any of our culture roundtables or our annual leadership summit, or even just the articles we write about, you know, we talk about how, um, you know, and we are aware and we make sure that other people aware is that there has to be consideration to how an organization, you know, builds and develops, uh, because if they win, that means more income comes into them. But if, mm -hmm. you know, they have an extremely poor toxic culture, you know, you know, athletes are going to be less ready. They're going to not perform at their highest levels. And obviously there's going to be more injuries, more turnover, so on and so forth. And so we discuss, um, you know, you know, positive and negative cultures, you know, equally at culture and sports. And this case study is going to be extremely interesting uh, with, with what we're going to bring up. Uh, one other thing I did want to mention, um, from my own research, or there's two things. One is, is that, um, I, 25% more women than men responded to, uh, the questions that I asked in the survey. Uh, but almost every single woman, um, uh, that experienced the toxic leader, to toxic or abusive leader or the toxic culture uh, reported sexism, sexual harassment, and assault in addition to what most males reported. And that doesn't mean that no males reported, uh, you know, sexism or sexual harassment or sexual assault or rape or anything like that. Uh, it was just a lot more prevalent with women, right? And so, mm -hmm. so that's something to consider as we move through. We're talking not only about um, this case study we're looking into this season, but into any situation, uh, especially as, you know, women's sports, you know, continue to develop and to continue to get, you know, equal viewership uh, or attendance at events. Um, this is something incredibly important to think about. The second thing mm -hmm. that I wanted to share is, um, you know, that a toxic or abusive coach can be successful you know, most of the time they're only successful for a short amount of time with the same organization. But a lot of people that I spoke with said, well, yes, they were part of a, you know, a successful organization, even though it's extremely toxic or abusive. Uh, but they said they put the priority to win at all costs, which in turn bred a culture of fear, which also promoted toxic followers. Um, and a lot of times in a, a toxic culture or abusive culture situation, there are toxic followers who are teammates, uh, mm -hmm. who not only are worried about themselves, but, um, you know, they actually push the agenda of the toxic or abusive coach or general manager or whatever the case may be. And there's lots of different things to think about. And, um, while the storylines may be similar, uh, regardless of the sport or the level of athlete, um, you know, each situation does look different. Um, you know, there's no one exact 
definition within sports to say this is exactly what a toxic culture or a toxic or abusive leader looks like or what they say. It's it's always different, right? Uh, but we still have to be aware. We still have to look for those things. Um, you know, and as coaches and as uh, leaders of sports organizations, um, do you want to be a one hit wonder? Um, and you know, your, your team did really well for one season, but then after that, because of the extreme, uh, abusive and toxic culture, you know, they're not going to win after that. Um, mm -hmm. you know, or, you know, plus athletes are going to get injured at a higher rate. They're not going to perform at the levels they should be, or do you want to be extremely successful year over year, season over season and have a positive culture that you're promoting? And, and that's just something for all of our listeners and viewers to think about is, you know, you know, not all toxic cultures look the same and not all abusive coaches look the same. And, and, you know, it, it's not just coaches. It could be support staff. It could be administrative staff. It could be, uh, you know, team captains, like, you know, the, the toxic or abusive person doesn't necessarily have to be the coach. And so mm -hmm. not all coaches are bad out there. We're not, <laughs> we're not advocating or saying that we're just saying that a lot of these, um, situations where we do encounter because of the closeness of the coach and the athlete, uh, that a lot of times the abuse or toxicity, uh, or both does come from that relationship. Right. Yeah. And this is, and this is something that no matter what sport you're talking about, right, this research that you've done and, you know, the, the cases and the case in particular that we're going to be following this season, um, it, it can apply to any sport, right? You could literally take the sport and replace it, you know, soccer, volleyball, football, basketball, tennis, cricket, you know, lacrosse, you know, no matter what it is. And there may be some subtle, you know, nuances, but these, these cases are representative of what is possible and what is probably happening in a lot of sports, you know, with toxic culture or in a toxic environment. Um, you know, another statistic to keep in mind for the season is that 75% of these cases go unreported. Right. That to me is a, right. is, you know, still to this day, I mean, although it's been years since I've, you know, heard that statistic and learned about it, like it still resonates very strongly because, you know, in my own experience now in an international federation, especially um, an international federation when there's a lot of gender equity, you know, between male and female athletes, male and female administrators, that, um, you know, we do have a number of cases. And it's always this way. You know, when you institute a athlete or a volunteer safeguarding program, um, there is a you know abundance of cases from the past that typically get reported, you know, and, and um, people realize like, okay, now I finally have somewhere to go. So you are dealing somewhat, you know, with things that may have occurred in the past. Um, and then of course you shift to dealing with, you know, present day, and then you finally get around to, okay, how can we, um, you know, be proactive about trying to prevent some of these cases from happening in the future, right? But, uh, you know, to your point, the, the abuse, you know, and, and what it looks like, right, still is the part that's undefined, right? Because, you know, I myself have experienced, you know, to your point about the sexism and the misogyny, you know, I had the same individual in my sport of volleyball. Um, you know, I remember I had every job, right? And when I used to sell volleyball equipment and be a sponsor, this person in their sponsorship, sponsorship solicitation to me and my company started talking about, you know, my weight or my appearance, like, oh, you couldn't possibly have played volleyball because, you know, you're native Hawaiian or aren't you Samoan? 
my cool gosh, I would sure be proud to be, you know, part Samoan, but I'm part Hawaiian, right? And if my legs are a lot bigger than than you like, well, that's too bad, you know, that's too bad for you. Well, the same individual years later, we're talking, you know, 20, 25 years later, um, you know, felt felt it was okay to make another comment shortly after I was elected, you know, to be the, the chair of the board of, of USA Volleyball, that they had to redecorate the boardroom now because they had an oriental chair. So not only was the verbal abuse, you know, misogynistic, it was also racist, right? So um, in that case, really what we're talking about with, you know, with these cases and moving forward is like, how do you define the abuse? How do you identify it? Right. And what what definition, you know, or category right. that exists or doesn't exist, does it fall into, you know, and then how do you go about dismantling it in a toxic, you know, environment? Sometimes it's it's not possible. Right. And we've seen we've seen examples of good people having to leave terrible organizations because like there's just it's overwhelming. Right. The task or the responsibility of trying to right the ship at that point is just it's uh, unmanageable. Uh, and then, of course, we've also seen institutions and organizations change or uh, dissolve or, you know, or somehow be severely impacted by revealing its toxic culture, right? And, uh, and you know, even going so far as to adjudicating, you know, some cases, whether at the criminal or civil, you know, civil level. Um, but what we're seeing, you know, more and more of today is, is a realization that it is okay to talk about your abuse, right? It's okay to bring it forward, right? The, those st- same elements of, you mentioned a lot, retaliation. That's the big, that's the word I think I hear used most often, you know, with victims that are considering reporting, um, you know, what's happened to them is, is the fear of retaliation. You know, I had a, and it's not just the victim. And I mean, Sometimes it's not just it's, the retaliation. I mean, because a lot of the time these athletes are still under the same coach. So, right, they, right. I mean, yes, it's retaliation for reporting, but, but they're already being, you know, poorly treated or abused, and then it just makes their right. situation that much worse. And and that That's toxic right. or abusive person is enlisting the help, more help from other people, just to make the right. situation right. that much worse for the athlete. Well, and it's that enlisting the help. Yeah, you know, this is this is another reason why I think there's not a lot of support in the reporting structure. Is that oftentimes, you know, in in one particular case, I found there were. Um, Actually, the attention became focused on a coach because of uh, sexual abuse among female athletes. And it took a while for this case to, to be reported. And at the time that it finally got reported, when 20 plus years had transpired you know, from the, from the victim's lived experience, um, the coach was coaching male athletes who then stepped forward or tried to step forward to a reporting agency and detail the um, slightly different type of abuse, more hazing bullying, physical abuse that was happening to them by the same coach. And an athletic, uh, uni- actually, sorry, a university academic administrator who was trying to be an ally, right, to these athletes ended up losing their job um, because of, you know, taking that position. So the retaliation, the impact, the effects of abuse, it, yes, hits hardest on the the person or persons, you know, receiving the actual abuse. But uh, and suffering from it, but it also takes its toll on those who are trying to advocate, you know, for victims' rights or the people that they end up going to for help, you know, again, who are outnumbered in the system, you know, again, if it's a toxic culture, right, you're pretty much outnumbered if you're the only one who's not, 
buying into or just flat out ignoring the toxicity uh, and the impacts are, are felt, you know, in, uh, in that area as well. So again, another barrier, you know, to reporting or to seeking relief or um, seeking safety, you know, is the fact that that abusive uh, culture, right, is part of the toxicity. It's, you know, it, it has different, um, exactly. a different face, right, depending on how it's dealt out, right? The abuse can be person to person, peer to peer, or it can happen very subtly behind the scenes in the form of inactivity or people with a duty of care, you know, to be responsible for not only athletes, but the people who are there to support those athletes, including the academic instructors and counselors and, you know, and staff at the university. It's like when people in positions of athletic director or a chief administrator or president of the university, you know, if you are in a position of power and you don't act and you don't empower the others in those positions to act as well to prevent these types of situations, I'm sorry, but you are part of the problem, right? You are the root cause of the problem. So I'm glad we're going to also be taking a look this season, um, you know, at that sort of layer, you know, of the toxic culture, you know, the enabler, mm -hmm. um, you know, the enablers and such. We're nearly out of time here, but um, wanted to thank our viewers and listeners for joining us for our fourth season of the Culture and Sports Podcast. But before we conclude this episode, Lori, can you please share with our viewers and listeners what we expect in the next episode of our show? Right. So, you know, we've been talking about this case study and um, some of you may have, have already, you know, read the articles and such. The uh, Orange County Register in Southern California and an award-winning reporter, Scott Reed, uh, broke a news story toward the end of 2023 about um, multiple players on the University of Idaho women's volleyball team who had suffered through an alleged abuse, uh, physical, emotional, uh, mental health, you know, jeopardizing their mental health, um, uh, verbal abuse, you know, against their head coach. Um, a head coach who, as far as we know, and from following the articles and the reporting done from outside of the state of Idaho, um, this head coach is still employed. This head coach is still responsible for coaching these athletes. Um, the university is not only aware of the complaint, there is a 10 plus page complaint that was filed by athletes from the 2023 fall women's volleyball season. Um, however, in uncovering this case, uh, the abuse dates back to the coach's arrival on campus in 2022. Um, I think the statistic was close to 70 players had transferred out of the university or had left volleyball altogether over the last two seasons. Um, and it's a fascinating, you know, case. We'll hear from Scott Reed, the reporter who, uh, who broke the story really through some investigation of his own. Uh, and that will be very interesting to, to hear, you know, how, what led him to that, that case and such. Uh, we're going to be hearing from, uh, some of the, the women on the 2023 roster who filed this complaint. Um, and we'll be also hearing from, you know, what's really interesting about this, this case, Jeremy, is we're also going to be hearing from women who played for this coach um, and some of the stories that they're, that they're you know, sharing now um, in having tried to warn the University of Idaho athletic director, Terry Golick, about the tendencies of this particular coach when they heard he had been hired. So we're talking back in 2022. Um, what's even more fascinating, it's an open case. Um, and we'll hopefully be following along this season as well as to the status 
uh, of an investigation that's ongoing right now at the University of Idaho, an internal investigation. Um, I think, you know, from a from a teaching standpoint, you know, sort of a learning opportunity, this is a um, very unique case where almost every angle that you, you know, that you see coming off of this initial reporting um, delves very deeply into some of the most troubled areas of uh, athlete abuse, you know, the barriers to reporting, the identification of abuse, the, um, you know, the enabler system that, that allowed this particular individual, this head coach, uh, I think I read in the article, 21, over 21 years had been uh, employed at 15 different institutions, where now there are at least seven or eight athletes from those past institutions that have gone on the record with the register, um, uh, sharing, you know, their, the warning signs, things that they witnessed, you know, other athletes that were, um, you know, harmed, physically harmed, you know, whether it be a season ending injury over training or being pushed to the ground by this particular coach. Uh, really it's a, it's a fascinating and heartbreaking case study, uh, that we'll be digging pretty deeply into this season. And that's a wrap for this week's episode of the Culture and Sports Podcast. We hope that this episode has started an internal dialogue, or even one with your team, about the importance of leadership and organizational culture. If you'd like to learn more about Culture and Sports, the Culture and Sports Podcast, or other programs, go to cultureandsports.com, where there is a wealth of resources, articles, research, podcasts, video shows, webinars, and courses. And don't forget to connect with us on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, and LinkedIn at Culture and Sports, and on Twitter at Culture in Sport. Thank you for tuning in to the Culture and Sports podcast.